Support for the Northwards podcast comes from St. Lawrence University, where a strong liberal arts tradition with real-world applications equips students to solve 21st century challenges. stlawu.edu We don't always stop to consider how good we've got it. I made three trips between the St. Lawrence and Champlain Valleys in the last week or so, and each time my drive took me through a swath of the Adirondack Park. It's easy to forget the place the Adirondacks occupy in the imagination of people who don't cross the blue line all the time. Writer Matt Delos spent many hours trying to understand why the Adirondacks capture the imagination of people from around the United States as he put together the dispatches that form his new book, In the Adirondacks. On this edition of Northwards, we'll consider what it means to have a so-called wilderness located within easy driving distance of so many people. Plus, we'll look back at the time a former president came to stay with Arthur Milnes and some music and conversation with Kingston singer-songwriter Julia Finnegan. I'm Mitch Tyke. All of this on the March edition of Northwards. I hope you'll keep listening. The news is next. This is Northwards, the monthly interview show coming to you from North Country Public Radio. I'm Mitch Tyke. A lot of folks take selfies in front of signs at landmarks. Have you ever stopped for a picture in front of the Welcome to Canada sign or Yellowstone or Grand Canyon National Park? Okay, but what about a photo in front of the sign marking an entrance to the Adirondack Park? Do you ever see people pulled over on Highway 56 or 458 or US 9? The blue line encompasses an area larger than some states, yet the Adirondacks hold a different place in the hearts and minds of Americans than many other great natural places. Writer Matt DeLoss wondered how the Adirondacks acquired the mystique they maintain for some people, and more broadly, what makes them unique. His new book is a series of dispatches about the region called In the Adirondacks, and he joins us on the line to talk about it. Welcome to Northwards. Thanks so much for having me. What was it that originally captivated you about the Adirondacks? Oh, it's such a good question because I feel like I originally had this engagement with the Adirondacks when I was relatively young. I kind of had heard of the Adirondacks, but I'd never really been there. And, you know, you kind of have this idea of places from afar and they're never really at all what you think they're going to end up being. And then I think that kind of sat there and I didn't really think much about it for a long time. And then all of a sudden, I kind of find myself going back there. Like I kind of travel through the edge with some friends, and then I kind of just get this growing interest. And I just kind of became fascinated with this idea of what I once thought it was and what it actually might be. Do you think that's a almost a proxy for for the way the the country kind of sees the Adirondacks? I mean, I kind of see how the country sees the Adirondacks as almost like this wild west frontier in a way, right? <laughs> like, I mean. There's this idea of it being six million acres of wilderness, which is um, like it's kind of a ridiculous thing. And yet I think it's so prominent that you can often be in the Adirondacks looking at a small town and be like, yes, I'm in the wilderness. So it's a little different, maybe, but maybe there's that kind of level of refinement that gradually getting to know it in a way. I, I gather when it came to writing the uh, the dispatches that make up this book, there was there's plenty of research in the Adirondack Experience archives, but you also spent a lot of time in places like souvenir shops and and tourist traps and 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 on hiking trails. Why was that part of your research important to this? I think 
I take a really broad definition of what might be a document that would inform a, a history or kind of a contemporary take on the Adirondacks. And I, I think places like souvenir shops are absolutely fascinating. I mean, what do we actually make of a souvenir shop that has an entire aisle dedicated to loon knickknacks? I mean, to <laughs> me, that's just a fascinating cultural object of like, what does this place mean and what value can we find in it? And you know, I think even maybe more important than that, like, what are the stories that we can kind of find by looking beyond kind of to like non-traditional sources in a way. What were you hoping to accomplish or what are you hoping to accomplish through sharing these views with with the people who will read this book? Yeah, I, I think maybe, um, I guess if we're talking about audience, maybe there are a couple different audiences who might sort of read this. I think there are a lot of people out there who have heard of the Adirondacks. They've maybe driven through it. They've maybe spent a night in Old Forge or Lake Placid. But I, I think it's kind of possible to have heard of it or have been there a little bit and not really have much of a sense of the region. In, in a way, you can kind of drive through it and kind of shrug and say, uh, it's another forest. And, and I think for those people who kind of have at least heard of the Adirondacks before, it's kind of a bit of a, a primer, this kind of like engaging, lively way to get to know the region. Um, right. And, and I think to kind of start to see a little bit of the complexity of the region through the stories that I tell. Uh, but I think at a different level for those of you who have kind of... Um, have a deeper engagement with the place, who have spent time there, who have grown up going to camp or who own a camp and go up there regularly or who live there. It's kind of an opportunity to take a step back and kind of see this idea of the Adirondacks um, kind of with a wider perspective. Like, What is its role in American culture, whatever that might exactly mean? Um, right. Like, How do we kind of prop up this idea of the Adirondacks in various ways? And like, how can we be kind of appreciative of it, but also maybe kind of critical of what we've done with it? You used the term earlier, uh, Wild West. Uh, what do you think has historically set the Adirondacks apart uh, from other parts of the country that also kind of have this outdoors mystique, places like the Rockies or the desert southwest, which which might you know be the real Wild West? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. I mean, I think part of it just has to be geography, right? I mean, it's proximity to so many people. And, and I think with that proximity, I mean, as soon as you start having trains that go there, it's relatively easy to get there. So you have a, a lot of kind of the shuttling back and forth. And I, I think it kind of just builds almost this cultural momentum in that like, a friend goes and the friend tells you about it, right? This gradually kind of accumulates and becomes significant. I, I mean, I think also if you look at the way people have titled books or paintings, I mean, every single one of those that is titled in the Adirondacks or the Adirondacks or sunset on an Adirondack lake, right? You're just kind of gradually building this this idea. Um, but it's it's also like a very defined physical realm, right? I mean, when you drive into the Adirondacks, you're crossing this boundary to actually enter the park. But but you're actually kind of shifting the ecology that you're within, right? You see this world that looks different from lower elevations. And so it's not only just that you've crossed a line, it's that the lake looks and smells different. It's that the water's a different temperature. If you go up in April and May, it might actually feel like late winter, not early spring. It's um, right. There's actually that very kind of physical element to it as well. I thought it was interesting. You make the point, and I had never considered it in exactly these terms, but uh, but it's a good point that, uh, you know, there are so many signs that show you where you're crossing the blue line. Welcome to the Adirondack Park. And yet you never do see people standing there posing in front of that sign the way they do in front of the sign that, you know, goes into the Grand Canyon or Yosemite or, or Yellowstone. 
Yeah, it's interesting, right? <laughs> you would think, I mean, I think I said this in the book, but it would be interesting. Like, you you see those signs and, like, the grass is actually worn down next to the sign. Like, so many people have stopped. And, like, we just haven't quite yet put that value on crossing into the Adirondacks like, yet, I think. And it is kind of like a recent invention, right? I mean, the, the boundaries of the Adirondacks were kind of poorly defined until, like, I mean, not actually poorly defined on a map, but like poorly defined as most people saw them until the 60s and 70s, right? And it's a, a pretty recent phenomenon that we have this kind of absolutely defined, <laughs> I'm in the Adirondacks, I'm not in the Adirondacks. <laughs> you do write uh, in many places about the Adirondack look, I'll put it in mm -hmm. air quotes here, um, the, the particular juxtapositioning of trees and lakes and landscape. How would you describe what that Adirondack look is? Yeah, I mean, I would first of all say that it seems like it's kind of shape shifting. I mentioned that it kind of like changes depending on the weather. Like there are places that could be foggy and look like the Adirondacks and they're sunny and they, they don't. I think, again, it's pointing to sort of those um, those more northerly species, right? I mean, if you think about the Adirondacks as kind of this, this defined physical region, like it does have a different geology. And so it has different species as well. Like even the water color is different. Um, right. It's it's pines. It's spruce. It's that dark tannic water. I, I mean, I would say it's even the way that like the water flows over the rocks. Right. It looks different than it does in Utica. It's it's much different. <laughs> well, and, and also the, the, the siding on buildings that you write about. You're right. And it's not just kind of these ecologically ecological factors. It's these cultural ones that kind of build off of those ecological ones. Right. Like we, we would see maybe um, brainstorm siding of kind of like the rustic edge being a little bit out of place in New York City in the Adirondacks. It just kind of makes sense. And to me, that's kind of a particularly interesting place to kind of dig in and find a history. Like, where does it make sense and why? So why would you contend it's important to consider the examples of, of the Adirondacks today in the context of all the other natural places in the U.S.? Yeah. Um, again, I think kind of a couple different angles on this. I think, first of all, I see a lot of value of kind of considering sort of specific and kind of immersive histories of regions, right? I think there's a lot to learn from those examples. Um, and, and I also think it's worthwhile to kind of consider sort of histories that didn't happen across a national stage. I mean, the model of the Adirondacks, as far as its preservation, conservation, however you want to label it, it didn't happen everywhere, right? We don't have these large parks that kind of mingle human communities and natural natural communities. And like, so it's kind of worthwhile to ask, what if that had happened? What if this was the model? What if we didn't have Yellowstone, but we had a broader Yellowstone region that encompassed more complexity than it does? How significant do you think is the is the forever wild concept in, in shaping both the past and also the present of the Adirondacks? Yeah, it, it's, it's a pretty complex one, right? I mean, I think what to me is particularly interesting is how people have kind of held on to that idea as being something that's pretty permanent. And we kind of think it today as like forever wild being almost in a way like wilderness, right? That's like the rise of wilderness areas in the park during the whole APA thing. Um, but yeah, I think it, it could be this more slightly malleable category, right? Because it's really like we're defining an ethic. What is it that we can do on this land in that place? And we've kind of recently at least defined forever wild as we can do absolutely nothing to that. And yet, I mean, to, for the most part, but I mean, that wasn't always the case, right? It was a little bit more flexible back in the early 20th century and late 19th century. Well, and, and there is an inherent irony about, you know, the idea of a, of a, a human designated wilderness because, you know, the, the wilderness only exists because humans say, say it's wilderness. Yeah, exactly right. It's, it's all policy in, in a way, right? It's all the decision. It's all an artifact. Um, I'm especially interested to have you talk about your attitude towards the southeastern part of the Adirondack Park, Lake George and the area around it, because it is, it is a different 
brand of the park, if you will, than uh, than what you experience in like Inlet or the High Peaks. Or, um, yeah. but you write with a lot of affection for Lake George. Eventually, right? Yeah, I, I yeah, get yeah well, right. To kind of liking it. <laughs> At first, I'm kind of wondering why in the world have I come to this town that in that moment is kind of feeling like the Las Vegas of the Adirondacks, and like why am I here? Why did I not go to a wilderness lake? And I mean, I think that's kind of all part of my process of really getting to know this place and not just kind of sticking to the original idea of what I thought it should be. I mean, I think if you can come to appreciate Lake George as some sort of essential part of what the Adirondacks actually means today, like I think we're probably all better for it, right? <laughs> it's kind of good to have that diversity to be able to see why that place can matter in this this region's history. Did you feel in some ways like, um, you know, a, a... In, in a, you know, in maybe a, a sociological way and explorer um, when you set about to put this book together? I don't know that I would have ever used kind of the word explorer for it. I mean, <laughs> to me, I was kind of this this out of town or kind of bumbling through the region, kind of seeing what I could learn. Well, that's an and explorer, it, right? <laughs> yeah, of a sort. You're, you're right. It's um, And, you know, I would take these kind of meandering drives to the region. I would say like, okay, you know, I'm going to start in Old Forge and I'm going to drive to the high peaks and then back through Lake George and, and come back. And it was only really later that I guess, after I had done a few of those drives that I sort of um, began then to really dig into Adirondack literature and kind of really start to get a lot of know, to know these stories and get to know what other people had written and kind of develop my understanding as I went went through them. Were there some kind of long-lasting surprises that came out of this project for you? Yeah, you know, I think one is um, when I started kind of doing my field research on this book or driving around, um, I it had never really occurred to me that I might want to have a boat. It's just like coming from someplace that doesn't have lakes and doesn't have rivers, I was like, I wouldn't need a boat, right? I can walk, I can drive. And I think just having that realization um, kind of made me much more aware of the importance of water in the history of the Adirondacks and kind of much more like I was able to actually visit some of these places that I wouldn't have otherwise been able to see. Right. I mean, the opportunity to kind of thread my way up through a boreal stream is just something that I would have never gotten on a roadside. And it just kind of continues to surprise me. And of course, then there's that whole history of guideboats and lightweight canoes, which is about opening up the wilderness to more people and so like that history kind of cascaded from that realization. One of the earliest anecdotes that you relate in this book uh, comes when you're a, a kind of a roadside diner in uh, in Tupper Lake and you overhear some uh, some young people talking about how they really hope to to get out of there. Um, and and you write about what your feelings about that were as it was as that conversation was going on. Do you think you know, uh, however many months and years on into into this project, you have a different understanding or a different appreciation for for what they were talking about? Yeah, I think I think as powerful as the identity and kind of the presence of the Adirondacks is, it doesn't have quite have the power to overcome some of the problems of rural America, right? And I, I, I can see why it wouldn't be enough, right? I, I think from an outsider's perspective, I mean, I was I was standing there and I'm like, look, I can go to this wilderness area in 20 minutes and I can go to this canoe wilderness area in 20 minutes. But that really kind of doesn't at all reflect the lived experience of that place. And right, this is one of, I think, looking to the future, one of the serious problems of the Adirondacks is like, it's wonderful that we see it as a wilderness. It's wonderful that we see it as this retreat from the modern world. But like, how does it become a much more livable place? And obviously, there are people who are much more informed on these issues currently working on this and trying to figure out how it is that you revive some of these towns so that um, younger people actually want to stay there. 
All right. So so it is just you and me and our listeners at this point. Um, mm-hmm. So I have to ask, what is your wife's secret loon name for an Adirondack camp? I would never reveal ah. that. <laughs> it's too good. You'll just have to trust me that it's too good. <laughs> All right. <laughs> and you know what? It probably already exists out there, but I'm just going to pretend that it doesn't. <laughs> if you don't Google it, it doesn't exist. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> well, Matt Delos, it's a it's it's a really thought provoking and uh, and such a well written book. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. Thanks again for having me. I really enjoyed having our talk. Matt Delos is the author of In the Adirondacks: Dispatches from the Largest Park in the Lower Forty Eight. We reached him in the Finger Lakes, where he teaches and is a PhD candidate at Cornell University. A short break now, and when we return, we'll revisit a time when the 39th president of the United States visited the region and slept over in the home of our next guest. This is NCPR's Northwards. NCPR's Northwards is supported by Renew Architecture and Design, offering custom design services from the St. Lawrence River Valley to the Adirondacks. More at renewarchitecture.com and by Brewer Bookstore on Park Street in Canton. Open to the public Monday through Saturday featuring books, household items, and gifts. BrewerBookstore.com You can have individual interviews from Northwards delivered to you every Friday. Learn more about the Northwards podcast at ncpr.org and subscribe on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Northwards from NCPR. I'm Mitch Tyke. Many people are looking back on the life and legacy of former President Jimmy Carter following the recent announcement that the 39th president will forego life-saving care for cancer and spend his final days in hospice. Some will remember his work on the Middle East peace process. Others will think back on the complex challenges he faced with inflation and the Iran hostage crisis. And still others think of the public service and charitable work that he and his wife Rosalind have done in the four decades since they left the White House. While Arthur Milnes remembers those things, too, the memory that rises to the surface for him is the night the president stayed in his house in Kingston, Ontario. Milnes is a historian, archivist, tour guide, speechwriter, and author of the recent book, 98 Reasons to Thank Jimmy Carter, which came out last March, which is when we first spoke with him. Thank you so much for taking some time to talk. Just thrilled to talk to our American friends and neighbors. How does a man from Kingston, Ontario, even one who has been a historian and speechwriter, get to know the 39th president of the United States? Oh, boy. Do you have a week? (laughs) (laughs) My my journey with Jimmy Carter starts when I'm about 14. And my parents, my mother in particular, never discussed politics around the dinner table, with one exception. And that was Jimmy Carter. She thought, from a Canadian standpoint, that Jimmy Carter was simply the greatest American president there could be. And both her and my father felt that with him in the White House, at the height of the Cold War, they felt very safe with his finger on the deterrent button. And uh, I guess that's where it started. And 
for whatever reason, I remember buying his, uh, uh, his memoirs, uh, Keeping Faith, when I was about 17. And then I wrote to him, and I got a handwritten note back. And I thought, oh, my God. You know, I was quite thrilled. And as uh, my career moved on into uh, journalism, I always kept up on his activities. And then, um, I don't know, 20 years ago, I read an article in the New York Times on a Sunday that President Carter taught Sunday school and it was open to the public. And I just, half an hour later, I had a plane ticket to go to Atlanta out of Syracuse and I drove to planes uh, from Atlanta and went to his uh, Sunday school service and you get to meet him uh, after. So I went up and I said, hi, I'm here from Canada. And he seemed very intrigued by that. And uh, we chatted for a few minutes, and, and then I went a year later, and uh, this time I said, hey, can, we, can I do an interview about Canada, nothing else, right? And he said, yeah, I'm paraphrasing, but he basically said, yeah, let's go to lunch. So off we went to the only restaurant in Plains at the time called Mom's Kitchen, and the former president of the United States and myself lined up at the buffet like everybody else. And uh, he made me pay. I, he still owes me. <laughs> yeah, so that's, that's the short version. Yeah, wow. So. He, he was a one-term president and not a very popular one in this country when he left office. Uh, it was obviously a tough time for the country, but it, history seems like it treats Jimmy Carter today more like your parents' opinion of him. Oh, uh, totally. And uh, what I found wonderful to watch is the fact that President Carter and, and Mrs. Carter have lived so long that they've been able to witness these reappraisals. And if you want to get Jimmy Carter mad, tell him he's a great ex-president. He hates that. He feels that the projects he's worked on as an ex-president are in a way a continuation of his presidency. And so it's fascinating. But I can tell you a funny story, if you want. Uh, when um, President and Mrs. Carter uh, honored my wife and I, they slept over here at our house in Kingston. And at dinner, we were talking. And I said, you know, Mr. President, you remind me of Herbert Hoover. And he looked at me and he said, I don't hear that one often, <laughs> Arthur. And I said, well, I told him this story, a uh, famous story that at the end of Hoover's life, one term lived decades after the presidency, people started to gain a new respect for Hoover. And um, a reporter or somebody asked Hoover, what's your secret that all these people now from these groups now respect you? And without hesitating, old President Hoover, Herbert Hoover said, I outlived the bastards. That's my <laughs> secret. And I've seen Jimmy Carter smile before. That was the biggest smile I ever seen on his face. <laughs> was that one? Well, and and I'm curious because, as you say, he he stayed over at your house along with his Secret Service detail and and you know whatever entourage uh, a former president has to have with him. What does one have to do to get one's house ready for a former president to 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 have a sleepover? Well, I'll tell you a funny story. When uh, the university here offered to present them with honorary degrees, a joint degree, which is great because it's pretty hard. Another thing I love about 
uh, the Carters is it's tough to tell where Jimmy starts and Rosalind ends and, and vice versa. Their partnership should be their middle name. So the day it was confirmed, uh, I was at home and my wife came home from work. And um, I said at the door, I said, hey, good news, President and Mrs. Carter are coming. And she started to go up the stairs and she said, that's really nice. We'll be able to see them. And she got about halfway up the stairs and she turned and she waved her finger at me and she said, you better not have asked them to sleep here. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I said, well, it came up. Right? So, so to answer your question, uh, you clean a lot. <laughs> and uh, my dream was probably like most men. My dream was to cook steaks on the barbecue and me and the president, my hero, the former president of the United States, having beers, grilling steaks. And my wife just said, no. She said, you'll burn everything. You'll run out of gas. And she was totally correct. So uh, we ended up having the meal uh, catered. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, you don't want to yeah, have so, to send the former president down to the store to buy more propane. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? And you know what he would have, right? But uh, yeah, it was quite an experience. And my neighbors loved it. And uh, something my wife and I treasure is that President and Mrs. Carter both planted ceremonial trees in our garden. And uh, uh, I proudly plaque them. And uh, I've also had seven prime ministers of Canada drop over. So I have quite a garden. This, this book is not a political analysis and, and no. not exactly history. Why, why was it important to write this tribute to him? You know, he's 98 and I was impacted by uh, there's two recent full length biographies of him by top U.S. journalists, historians, wonderful books. But I was also thinking a lot of my friends who aren't big political history fans, they've been talking about him a lot because of, you know, the documentaries, Carterland. And then there was the one that really got people interested was um, Rock and Roll President. So I thought to myself, you know, um, why don't I not do a, you know, deep dive look at the Carter legacy? Because, you know, um, I've done that in the past. But I thought, why don't I have some fun? And I wrote it in a light vein. I call it, if I'm allowed to say on the air, I call it a bathroom book. So you go to the bathroom, you take the book, it's perfect small size, and you read three or four things. And then if you're at work, you go to the water cooler and you say, did you know that Elvis made one of his last phone calls to Jimmy Carter? <laughs> right? Or did you know that Jimmy Carter helped save the capital of Canada uh, from a nuclear accident because his do you know Jimmy Carter makes his own wine right like his Carter's legacy and interests are so eclectic and then obviously there were serious things um, for a one-term president his foreign policy successes are remarkable obviously Camp David the Panama Canal uh, negotiating a nuclear agreement with the Soviets that wasn't approved by Congress, but they abided by it. These were giant accomplishments. 
And uh, so I put those in as well. Well, and, and I think there may be many people who forget or, or who are not old enough to remember um, Canada's positive role in the major foreign policy crisis of the Carter administration, uh, the, the hostage crisis. When he came here to Kingston, uh, he, he told me before, a week or two before, that he was going to see the movie Argo on purpose in Atlanta ahead of his Canadian trip. So he might have been out of politics 40 years. <laughs> Boy, does he know how to make a Canadian crowd happy. And he, in his speech, he talked about how Ben Affleck's movie was a great movie, except he thought that Canada was undersold and the Canadians were the true heroes. And uh, that went over pretty well for some reason. <laughs> for knowing as much as you know about the Carter presidency and and about Jimmy Carter, the man, were there aspects of his life that when you were putting this book together still surprised you? Oh, daily. Uh, I had no idea he played such a crucial role. Are you ready for this? In sparking the American craft brewing industry. I had no idea this Baptist from rural Georgia has helped spark this incredible industry that uh, employs thousands. And if I'm allowed to, from a Canadian standpoint, I hate to say this, but American beer's never been too good. <laughs> now, thanks to Jimmy Carter, uh, boy, uh, are there wonderful microbreweries all over. So, so that was one example. Right at the um, time, at at the time of his presidency, you, it was illegal to be a home brewer. Exactly. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the Carter, the scientist or rational person said to himself when he heard about it, he said, this is ridiculous. And uh, I actually don't know if he's a beer drinker, but uh, even if he isn't, there should be pubs all over the North Country where they have a toast to Jimmy Carter with their beers some night, you know. <laughs> His and, brother was certainly a beer drinker. <laughs> yeah, Billy, uh, that was another thing I, I wanted to put in the book, which I did. The Carter family, like I just said, is just, uh, it, what a group. You know, his mother was a nurse and provided equal health care to uh, African-Americans, which during that time was in that part of the world, you know, what stood out. And, um, and then another thing, which is obviously well known about Carter is, is when he ran for governor, he kind of how do I put it? He kind of played both sides. But the moment he's elected, he says the time for racism is over. And that's never been heard of at that point. So um, he would hate hearing me say this, but um, I th think, I hope I'm wrong, that for the rest of my life, I'll never meet such a profoundly moral man. And I, as my journey with him and studying him has uh, grown deeper and uh, over the years, I view him, I am less interested in the political Jimmy Carter than I first was, which is, you know, fascinating, of course. But his, uh, I read once something that has always stuck in my mind that thanks to the personal interventions by Jimmy and Rosalind Carter over the decades, something like 70,000 prisoners of conscience have been released around the world. 
And another famous story, um, a, a, one of his assistants was in the room when President Carter met with the Pope, Pope John Paul. And the assistant said to a historian, watching the scene, it was tough to tell who was the politician and who was the religious figure. <laughs> He's uh, one of them, but just one of the most remarkable people of our time. Uh, and uh, I'm so one of the great honors of my life has been to get to know him as a friend. And another thing, if I'm allowed to say, Mrs. Carter, um, she too is my hero, particularly with her work ongoing. Her work, she started in the 60s advocating for mental health reform and the lifting of stigma. It's, imagine, it's tough, tough enough today to face that stigma. And she was doing it in the 60s, in the early 60s. So she's a remarkable woman and a better politician than him. The other fun thing, if, if you want to hear one, they're great to watch bicker, just like every other uh, husband and wife. And they had a nice dust up at my house over dinner. And uh, they were, you know, just like your spouse and my spouse. And, you know, it was nothing serious, but it was a husband and wife thing. And he made his final point, and I wish I could do her accent, but Mrs. Carter just looked down at the table and said, Jimmy, you can keep arguing, but you're still wrong. <laughs> uh, I, I can't let you go without asking how you happened to get Dan Aykroyd to blurb the cover of this book. Oh, well, uh, Dan Aykroyd lives here. Part, uh, part of the year he lives in Kingston. I contacted him through a friend who had his email address and I swore I wouldn't give it to anybody. So I said, Mr. Aykroyd, you know, you'll remember playing Jimmy Carter on Saturday Night Live. And Mr. Aykroyd also produces his own wine and vodka. So I said, just wanted to tell you, I'm hosting President Mrs. Carter at my house here in Kingston. Maybe you wanted to send a bottle of your wine. And the day of, uh, this beaten up old car arrived, knocked on my door, asked by his Arthur Milnes, and I said, yes. And the guy said, okay, Dan, Dan Aykroyd sent some stuff for you. So we went out to his trunk and there was a case of his red wine and a case of his skullhead vodka. And uh, so I served the wine at dinner. So anyway, so same thing, I contacted Mr. Aykroyd and and asked if he would do a blurb uh, for my cover. And he came through in two days. And uh, like I said, it's, uh, I've never met him. <laughs> and, uh, but I owe him a great deal. Well, Arthur Milnes, I, I appreciate it. Uh, let's talk again soon. Hey, my father always said the best, one of the best parts of being Canadian is living next door to such a wonderful, dynamic and friendly people. And that's you guys. So uh, uh, thank you to all my friends and neighbors in New York State. Arthur Milnes wears a lot of hats. He's a historian, archivist, tour guide, former political speechwriter, and author of two books about the 39th president, 2011's Jimmy and Rosalind Carter, A Canadian Tribute, and 98 Reasons to Thank Jimmy Carter, which came out last year. We reached him then at his home in Kingston. One more break, and then we'll stay on the other side of the border and meet Kingston singer-songwriter Julia Finnegan when Northwards returns right after this on North Country Public Radio. NCPR's Northwards gets support from the Book Nook. 
an independent bookstore located on Broadway in Saranac Lake, on Facebook at SL Booknook, and from Planned Parenthood, providing confidential supportive counseling, education, advocacy, and a 24-hour hotline through their Sexual Assault Services program in Clinton, Essex, and Franklin Counties. Do you have an idea for a future interview on this show? Send some words our way by visiting ncpr.org slash northwords. More of Northwords now coming to you from North Country Public Radio. I'm Mitch Tyke. Kingston singer-songwriter Julia Finnegan might be youthful in age, but her music will have a familiar vibe to Gen X children of the 80s and 90s. And the language in her lyrics calls on songs and artists who were on the charts well before she was born. Groups like Derek and the Dominoes and America, and songwriters such as Bob Dylan and Jacob Dylan. Finnegan's most recent album is called Listen to the Wallflowers, a title which works both as a metaphor and as a literal tribute to the younger Dylan's band. And there are lots of clever and playful turns of phrase in her songs, even as they are, as she puts it, a little moody and melancholy. We'll hear some music in the next few minutes, but first, Julia Finnegan joins us from Kingston. Welcome to Northwards. So nice to meet you, and thanks for taking the time to talk. Oh, thank you so much for having me. What was it that turned you into a songwriter? That's a good question. Well, when I was in grade school, we had like a number of different lessons where we would learn about poetry, and we'd write our own poetry. So, I, And my dad um, has always played music, and written songs so he would sometimes allow me to write with him which was always so much fun and then I would write poems and for classes and stuff and I just really loved it so you feel like you're really connecting those those two things the the love for music that it sounds like you got from your dad and and your interest in poetry yeah yeah I think so he's always really drawn me to to listening to the words in songs uh and and I always wanted to write with him, so it it just kind of went hand in hand. Is he and and are you one of those people that has to has to you know pull out the lyric sheet from a CD jewel case and and read what's being sung? Yeah, definitely for sure. He has uh, he has kind of ingrained that within me, and I am always obsessed with lyrics. My dad, um, he. <laughs> loved 80s music like loves 80s music so he introduced me to the cure and and things like that and and i i really love the cure um there's a canadian singer songwriter here where i'm from and uh, her name is sarah harmer she was a big part of music growing up for me well and it's interesting you mentioned the 80s because you know i i grew up in the 80s and i feel like that was one of the things that connected me to your last album was turning it on and feeling like it was both fresh and also there's like an 80s influence you can feel in it oh that's so cool i think i think my music is really informed by things that i listen to and so Maybe it's just kind of subconscious, but I wanted it to sound kind of like something that you've maybe heard before. Maybe you're on the plane,
I mean, I guess no musician necessarily likes to hear that they sound just like someone else. So I won't say yeah. anything. I, I won't say anything in those terms. But I, I do have to say that the first time I listened to this album, I got the same immediate feeling I did when I listened to Kathleen Edwards' Failure for the first time. It was just, you know, like just a similar vibe. That's really funny that you say that. Um Kathleen Edwards is another person that my dad introduced me to and I I love her music um and actually um John Hines played guitar on my record and and he plays with her as well yeah it's hard hard to describe what it is about that record it's just like there's there's a feeling in that record that sounded like nothing else I had heard before yeah she's such a special case where I I find it's really rare to find a musician that makes you laugh and also has such devastating lyrics at the same time. And, and she is just, she's so great. Does the music come to you first or do the words? It's funny because I, I certainly do not consider myself a poet, but I'm really drawn to words and, and playing with them. Um, and so certainly uh, most of the time words come to me first. Um, so I'll think of a phrase and, and it'll kind of lead me lead me from there. Can you describe what sitting down to write a song feels and looks like to you? I think it feels, it feels kind of different every time. But for me, the common thread is when I'm sitting down to write a song, whatever the emotion may be, I just feel like it's something that I really need to get out. It's just really cathartic for me to do. And also, um, I just kind of obsess over it for a while until I feel that I've gotten my point across. Listen to the Wallflowers is is not what I would describe as a happy album necessarily. <laughs> um, <laughs> what adjective would you use to to describe the vibe and and what were those emotions that you were trying to get out through putting these songs first on paper and then digital tape? Yeah, I wouldn't say that it's happy, <laughs> for sure. Um, it's definitely pretty melancholy, I think. There are some like kind of peaks and valleys, I think, in certain songs. But for the most part, the kind of the atmosphere of the record is, is quite moody, I would say, um, and pretty melancholy. Kept your coffee in my car Days overdue. It fills the space on your side. Shift to reverse, I think of you. Break of day, we said goodbye. At, at the same time, you know, what do you feel when you're on stage performing these songs? Sometimes I feel kind of removed from the song, but then when I think about the time and the place that I was writing it, it's pretty empowering to to be able to perform them and feel removed from it afterwards. So it's um, 
it makes me feel I don't know it makes me feel happy to perform <laughs> even though they're not happy songs <laughs> I, I always wondered about that because you know like you you write songs from a certain time and place and situation in your life but then you know you're playing them some years later and you could be in a completely different place so you have to be able to kind of see yourself from 30,000 feet it is quite strange so I had when I was writing that album I mean it was a couple of years ago now but um I am now in a, a happy relationship and so it's funny listening to kind of where I was at and the loneliness in the songs and also feeling kind of misunderstood and that kind of juxtaposed by feeling very loved and and understood is a nice feeling yeah, so I guess I was going to ask, it feels a little like either a breakup album or a frustrated album in some ways. <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's funny to think about because I, it sounds strange, but I haven't really ever had a real, knock on wood, had a real true breakup like that before. Uh, and so really, it, I, it was comprised of a lot of feelings where I was kind of admiring someone from afar and that feeling of longing and yearning and um, there is no closure in that sort of sense so it's it is kind of a frustration I I guess there, there's that um, there's that line I think in uh, was it in for me yet that uh, that you write songs about other people and no one's written a song for you yet I've thought about the circumstance and inspirations, impetuses, pain. So I fill the space between these lines to reconcile the apathy I feign. Am I tangled up in Yeah, that's, uh, it's actually not true. Um, I, my, so that's the funny thing. My dad wrote a few songs for me when I was little, um, but I just thought it was a funny lyric to put in. It's, it's like I write all these songs about people they don't even know. Um, so it's just, it's a weird, I wanted it to kind of sound like I was observing things from the outside looking in. And so that's kind of where the theme of being a wallflower is kind of watching everything go by and you're not really immersed in it. So I guess, yeah, for me, it, it kind of encapsulates that, I think. Was it a happy coincidence that, that, that you use both wallflower and Rolling Stone as metaphors? And, and they're also, of course, bands and, and musicians who have come before. Yeah, so I am a huge Bob Dylan fan, um, and I also really like Jacob Dylan. Um, so I have listened to The Wallflower and The Rolling Stones. Um, <laughs> it's a funny like way of writing about music and and also my life, because um, those are pretty big parts of my life are, are those influences. And so I wanted to kind of turn the phrase and kind of liken it to things I'm listening to, but also um, things I'm going through.
about the music scene in Kingston? What does it offer you as an up-and-coming musician? The music scene in Kingston has been so supportive. I think sometimes when people think of up-and-coming musicians, you think of competition or like putting people against each other. And most of the opportunities for me that have come about have been from other musicians and my relationships with them. So I've just been really grateful to to be in this town and to be surrounded by people who, who love the similar things as me and also learn from them. If I understand correctly, you do have new music coming out in the next few months. Yeah, I'm I'm currently working on um, recording some more. So I was back in the studio in February. So I'm in the process of kind of putting ideas together and, and doing that. Um, so yeah, I've still got some work ahead of me, but yeah, no no uh, release dates officially yet. How much of your life is is you know full time musician versus whatever else it is that you do with your life? That's a good, uh, funny question as well. So I, um, I was working as a um, social media manager for a paint company in town um, in Kingston called TriArt. And I loved, loved doing that. So it was really cool because I got to work with artists from all over the world and they manufacture like artist paint and materials to go all around the world. Um, but it was manufactured in Kingston. Um, and then I actually... Just recently left my job to give myself some time to pursue music full time. Uh, so it was it's been a weird, scary process, but I just finished. So it's been about two weeks since since I left. And it's it's been a little bit strange. <laughs> Do you have to teach yourself like what what it is that a musician, how a musician structures her days? A thousand percent. And I'm still I'm still learning. Um, so it's been a kind of a learning curve and it's been such a blessing as well to kind of have this time uh, to work on this. But, but yeah, it has been strange. It's a lot of independence, which is so great, but also it's, it's challenging sometimes because I'm not the best scheduling person ever. So. <laughs> well, he, he is not on this call to answer this question. So I'm going to have to ask you to put words into uh, to his mouth, but you know, for, Considering the influence that your dad has had on you as a musician, what does he think about your music? Uh, I don't really know. He's, he's, <laughs> uh, well, I do know that he's proud of me, um, which is a nice feeling, but, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't really know like specific songs. Like there's some songs that I'll, he's, he has always been the first person that I would show song ideas to, um, and frequently, when I would show him songs, he'd be like, oh, you're writing about this thing again? Like, what are you thinking? Get over it. So, no, he he could not be more supportive. So I'm really grateful for that. If there were one aspiration, like a Julia Finnegan pipe dream for your music career, what would it be? Oh, my gosh. Um, I recently went to go see, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Lee Folebeck. Um, he's a Canadian singer-songwriter and he's he's amazing to see perform but I went to go see him perform at Massey Hall in Toronto and I'd never been there before so I I'd just love to play there I think that would be my pipe dream well Julia Finnegan I hope uh, 
you'll be able to play here in the NCPR studio someday. But in the meantime, we have truly enjoyed uh, having you on the show and best of luck to you. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's been so fun chatting with you. Julia Finnegan is a singer-songwriter who lives in Kingston. Her most recent album is called Listen to the Wallflowers, and you can hear and see more and find when and where she's playing from a link at ncpr.org slash northwards. I think the message was received, though silence followed the beep. Now we both don't feel so And with that, we come to the end of the March edition of Northwards. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the Northwards podcast and get an episode delivered to you every Friday from the comfort of your phone or your computer or your smart speaker. I'm Mitch Tyke. Thanks for listening. Here and Now is next on NCPR, followed by Science Friday and The Beat Authority. Have a great afternoon. Well, this city sits still, this stone.